Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Genesis 39. Genesis 39, we'll pick up the reading in verse 1, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in the sight, in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything for me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice, he cried out and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until... His master came home. She told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and uh, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The grass withers, 
The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father, we come before you in this moment having just had the story of Genesis 39 read and received uh, into our ears. The content of this unfolding in the life of your servant Joseph. But now, Lord, as we attend to this word and consider its teaching, we ask that we would not be hearers merely of the ear, but that we would be hearers of the heart. And that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit now, would set aside this moment as a means by which we would hear not just the voice of a man speaking, but that we would hear the voice of the living God communicating to us on the wings of the Spirit, changing us and transforming us into the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ, your Son. Come and meet us now as we give our attention to this word and accomplish all that you send this word out to accomplish. For your name's sake, we ask it. Amen. Let me paint a couple of scenarios for you. You're running late for an important meeting. It's critical that you get there on time. You jump into your car, and you make it to the meeting in record time. You do so because you, you don't get stopped by any of the traffic lights along the way. You've perfectly timed all of the green lights in order to be able to get there. There was no putzing about with cars in front of you that would keep you from being able to get there and no obstacle in your way. You simply pull into the drive. You, you walk in the door with a minute to spare, and you're there. You made it in time for the critical meeting. Now let's do it all again. You've got to make it to this important meeting. You jump in your car, and traffic is much heavier than usual. You get behind someone who has, is simply enjoying a bit of a joy ride. The top is down. The air is flowing through their, their hair. They have no idea that you're riding their bumper because they are completely a, a, a lost in the beauty of the moment of this, this glorious September 1st day. You hit every light. I mean, every single light. On the way, and and just as you're like, you can see where it is that you should, you should be, and, and you know what you see behind you, a blue light special. Yes, that speeding you did between the lights. We don't even know how you reach the speeds that you reached between those lights because there were so many lights. But somehow or another, you reached speeds that you should not have reached between those lights. And now, you've been pulled over to the side, and you're just watching the clock, and you just know. I'm in trouble. Now, in which of those scenarios is God present? Which of those scenarios? 
I would like to suggest that in your mind, if you had arrived at the meeting and someone had spoken to you, let's say a fellow Christian had spoken to you, you would have said something like, oh, God just worked it out for me to be here. It's awesome. It was so providential that all of the green lights were just in line. There was Traffic was lighter than, than usual. But then take the other scenario. The one where you didn't make your, your meeting, there was more traffic than usual. You had hit all of the, the lights, e- even the lights behind you now flashing blue. And you completely missed the meeting. You probably don't say, it was just so providential. It was, it was just so providential. It was, just, it, just, it was unbelievable how, how all the things just worked together for the good of those who love the Lord. It just, I, it, it just is so... So providential. No, you would have said something like, the devil was in that. The evil one was all around me. Or, or maybe you would say something, which I think is probably more common, because uh, you probably wouldn't go so spiritual in, in that moment. You, you'd probably do something like, it's just my luck. Right? It's, it's just my luck. That's how I was, that's how I was feeling. Actually, last um, Saturday evening, my son Knox and I are in a fantasy football league. Yes, with uh, friends in the area, fifth grade sons and fathers, and we had just drafted our, our team for the year, and uh, feeling pretty good about my choices. Uh, Yahoo had given me an A minus on all of my drafts, so I, I think I'd done pretty well. And and uh, and then about twenty minutes after the draft, I, I hear that Andrew Luck, <laughs> quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts, twenty nine years old is retiring. Guess who picked Andrew Luck in the Fantasy Football League? You guessed it. Yours truly picked Andrew Luck 20 minutes before he announced his retirement. It's just my luck. Now, I I must admit, I immediately thought to myself, it's probably God's judgment that a, a Presbyterian pastor would choose a quarterback with the name of Luck. You know, it's probably just God poking me in the ribs a little bit. If he was Andrew Providence, it would be a little different, but he was Andrew, Andrew Luck. Now, the fact of the matter is, when we think about Providence, don't we often think about it almost in terms of like good luck? That's kind of how we use it. It's almost like a religious synonym for how the world uses the term Luck. And the fact of the matter is the Bible doesn't use it that way at all. It's not how the Bible sees it. It's not how the Bible understands it. It's, it's much more rich. It's much more complex. It's, mo- it's more developed. It's more nuanced. It, it, it sees not just the good things, but also the bad things. It takes in the encompassing of all things as being moved by the very will of God. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, did did you notice four times in Genesis 39 that we're told that the Lord was with Joseph? Two, right there at the beginning, two times, verses two and three, it mentions the Lord is with Joseph. And then right at the very end of the text, in verses 21 and 23, it says the Lord was with, with Joseph. It's as if the whole passage is bookended by, now don't, don't get confused, the Lord is with Joseph. 
lest you be confused, the Lord is here and the Lord is at work here. But believe it or not, that's really the teaching of Genesis 39. So I just gave it to you. We could pray. We could go home. We won't. That's the teaching of Genesis 39 right there. That the Lord is with us and that he is at work. And, it's, and this passage bookends it around what really turns out to be a, a pretty crummy situation for Joseph. A, a situation where he hit all of the traffic lights and more. <laughs> this is a bad day in one sense in the life of Joseph. But it's, it's a... It's a good day depending on, well, how you look at it. Depending on what's really unfolding. What, what is the providence of the passage? Believe it or not, this is not a passage primarily about fleeing sexual temptation. That's usually how this passage is used. Now, that's very important and it's, it's very good. And that's a, that's a sub point in the context of Genesis 39. But that's not the focus of this text. The focus of this text is that God is working to accomplish his purposes in the life of Joseph. Now, let me just ask you, why do you think that theme is being, being raised right now? At this point in the, the story of Joseph. Well, if I could suggest a reason, maybe Joseph needs to know that. And maybe we as readers at this point in the text, need, need to know that. You know, Joseph has just gone from being the favored son of his father Jacob, the one who donned the finest of threads, the coat of many colors, the one who is receiving divine revelations from God about a promised future where he is the man, to being an Egyptian master with no privileges whatsoever, no power, with stitches for clothes, and no discernible future to speak of. This could be a good time to hear, God is with you. He is at work. It would be a tendency, I believe, for Joseph, as it is a tendency for us, that in the moments of the most difficult matters that happen in our lives, we tend to think that God's not in this. We ask questions like, where is God? We ask God to show up as if he's not there. God, show up. God, God do something. Could be that God is doing something. It might be that we don't like what God is doing. This passage teaches us that God is not absent in the midst of the, the downers. You know, that's how the text begins. He goes down to Egypt. That's the first question. It's not just a geographical note. He has literally gone down in every sense of the word to Egypt. And it's in the midst of those downers that God is doing a great work. God is, God's providence is moving along the life of Joseph towards his redemptive purposes. So with that in mind, I want to, just, I want to briefly, briefly look at a couple of things. I want you to see in, in this text the providence of God in good things. I want you to see the providence of God in bad things. And then I want you to see the providence of God in the ultimate thing. That's what we're going to look at. In good things, and bad things, and then in the, the ultimate thing. Now, let's start with the good things, right? You know, good news, bad news. Let's start with the good news in, in this case. Uh, Joseph, as you can see right there in verse 3, as he lands in Egypt, now as a servant of Potiphar, his, his master, we see that the Lord gives to Joseph great success. 
Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord caused, notice the Lord being the source, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. It's the providence of God in the midst of Joseph's work. Joseph's work is being effective, it's being fruitful because God is in it and God is even opening up the eyes of the Egyptian master to acknowledge and to notice that the Lord is with him. Isn't that remarkable? We see the providence of God in Joseph's work. We see the providence of God in Joseph's relationship here with his master. That this master, we're told in, in verse 4, has, has given to Joseph his favor. He, in fact, he has stepped away entirely from the operations of his house. So much so that he doesn't even know what's going on because he trusts Joseph so much. It's remarkable. He, in fact, Joseph himself notes it in the midst of the temptation, in the midst of the... Uh, the, the back and forth with Potiphar's wife, he says, listen, I'm in charge of this house. I'm in charge of this house as much, if not more, than your own husband. God in his providence, in the good things in Joseph's life, he's given him relationship and favor. He's given him productivity and effectiveness with regards to his work. Notice how Joseph is also being, as it were, a watering garden, a kind of well, a kind of influence for shalom, for peace and blessing in the life of the Egyptian master. Uh, it says that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, that is the Egyptian master, in his house and in his field. This guy, if we could put it this way in sort of pagan language and notion and probably how the Egyptian master would have viewed it, this guy is a lucky charm. Everything he touches just turns into gold. I'm going to put this guy in charge of everything. I'm going to just release this guy into all of my going-ons because this guy has the Lord with him. Now, if you can, if you can read the, the positiveness of the providence of God and the good things that are happening in the midst of a difficult circumstance for Joseph, you can see that the text is bending over backwards to say, this is not because Joseph was smart, it's not because he had the gifts, the charisma. It doesn't locate the sourcing for his effectiveness in his relationships and in Potiphar's house, in himself. It locates it where? God is with him. God is causing these things to happen. Now, if you're thinking back a bit covenantally, we've been reading in the book of Genesis for some time. Back in Genesis chapter 12, do you remember the promise that was given to Abraham? He was going to be a blessing. He's going to be a blessing to all of the nations. In fact, we're told that he's going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. What do we see happening here? We see the beginning of a fulfillment. Here, here's Joseph, the, the great-great-grandson of, of Abraham, now coming to a foreign nation working and laboring within her midst. And what is he being? He's being a blessing to the nations. They're actually acknowledging, almost in the way that Daniel was acknowledged by Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, as being one in whom the Lord is with. One in whom the Lord is utilizing for his purposes. And it became a blessing to Babylon. In the time of Daniel, it becomes a blessing to Egypt. In the time of Joseph. Interestingly, later in the text, in verses 21 to 23, it happens all over again. Did you notice that? You, you could literally say this, this text is about the rise, the fall, and the rise of Joseph. 
You're thinking, this guy, you know, like one word summary, Joseph's life, roller coaster. Is that two words? Two word summary of Joseph's life, a roller coaster. I mean, rise, fall, rise. We have it right here in the midst of just a, of 23 verses. And right in the midst of these positives where in the prison house, he's once again put in charge. He's done everything. The guard doesn't even have to be there. Everything's entrusted to Joseph. Everywhere he shows up, good things happen. But if you notice, at one point he was at Potiphar's house and another point he's in a prison. And in both places, he's highly successful. But there's a disparity in those places. And it's because this big, scary fall happens right in the middle of the text. Well, this is what I'm calling providence in the bad things. Providence in the bad things. This is read the bulk of the narrative. You notice that, right? Verses 7 all the way to verse 20 is, is about the bad things, the difficult things, the challenges in the midst of Joseph's life, known by the master. All we really know about her is... She's consumed with lust for Joseph. I mean, in what, what quite honestly seems almost unnatural in the context of the passage as it unfolds. And yet, in the midst of it, there's all kinds of providential things. I mean, we, we could note, for instance, we're told Joseph's pretty good looking. In verse 7 of the text, our looks are a matter for God. Uh, the situation, ultimately, where he is undone in verse 11 is a context where there's nobody else in the house. The text makes that very clear, which makes it an opportunity for the story and the allegations to be able to, to run. Is God in control of all that? You better believe he is. But even the temptation itself is providential. Even the temptation itself is providential. Now, do you have a question in your mind about that? You should. When you hear me say that even the temptation itself is providential, I, I hope something like James 1.13 pops into your mind. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by, by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But James is saying, listen, God doesn't have... A, 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 a sourcing in this thing called temptation and certainly not in this thing called sin. John 1.5 tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He is perfectly holy. He is absolutely righteous, pure through and through. It's not in his nature to cast the shadow of sourcing for temptation or for sin. And so when I say it's providential in terms of temptation that God is... God is all about it, meaning that he's there in its context. He's moving it along. He's overseeing it and overshadowing it. I don't mean to be saying that God is the tempter. I don't mean to be saying that God is the author of sin or temptation. He is clearly not, as the Scripture speaks. But what we do see all over the pages of Scripture is that he permits it. He allows for it. 
Our own confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, speaks to this in chapter 5 on the subject of providence. It speaks of God being a ruler and authority over all things that happen with creatures, events, and things, no matter whether they be good or whether they be evil. And yet it says that he himself is not the source or author of any of those temptations or sin, and yet he overrules, guides, and directs them all. According to his sovereign purpose. That's what we have here in the midst of this text. Now, if you think about it, God's already done all of that. I mean, if you, if you look at one of the most heartening parts of this whole story, isn't it, is, is Joseph's resistance to sexual temptation. It's incredibly encouraging. I, in fact, I, I encourage you to examine and consider the way Joseph actually says no to the lust of the flesh, though it's repeated. This is not a one-time occurrence. We're told that daily this went on in verses 8 and 9. She was constantly after Joseph. If you look at the nature of the way that he resisted, here's what's fascinating. He filled his mind not with the presenting temptation. He filled his mind with his master, his responsibility to his master. How could I do this to my master? He's put me in charge of everything that is his. He's blessed me. He's put everything at my disposal. How could I do such a thing to him? And then he concludes in verse 9 saying, even deeper and more profound, how could I do this to my God? How, how could I sin against my God who has so loved me, so cared for me, so providentially placed me within a covenant family and extended the promises of God in and through me. How could I sin against God? Now, I'm putting, as it were, a little bit of the internal narrative that may or may not be the specific words that are there in the minds and the heart of Joseph. But let me tell you, it's pretty remarkable that Joseph says that. Because what about Joseph's life would lead him to the conclusion that God has taken good care of him? Why, why wouldn't he just reject this God? It, I mean, this God has shipped him off to Egypt. He sold him into slavery. He's undone everything that he promised to him in the midst of the dream. How is it that Joseph of Genesis 37, who remember how eager he was to share his dream with his brothers and how puffed up he was and naive and yet bold at the same time because he was going to be the man based upon his dreams. How does he end up being Joseph in 39, who's more than willing to submit to his master and who is concerned about the righteousness of God? We haven't seen that in Joseph. It's, it's as if this comes out of nowhere, except it doesn't come out of nowhere, does it? It came out of the deception of his brothers, out of his being sold into slavery, out of the means of the wickedness of his brothers. He has been brought to Egypt and he has been humbled. He has been softened by God's heart through the challenges that he's walked through, through the difficulties that he's faced. The Lord has clearly strengthened his character to such degree that now he's not looking to become the man and take over the man's wife, but he submits himself to him and submits himself to God. Joseph has undergone a heart change. How did all that happen? Well, the evil that was done against Joseph, God has now used for good in Joseph. Do you see? 
Now, now let me pause right there because that's true for many of us in this room, isn't it? You think of the times in your life where the Lord has grown you, where the Lord has changed you, where character has, has clearly developed and there's a fortitude and a strength in your followership of what God calls you to in terms of his commands. Let me ask you, where did that come from? Suffering, trial, difficulty, experience, and in many cases, either sins that you committed that you had to reap the consequences of, or sins that were committed against you, which caused you incredible pain. And on the other side of God's grace and forgiveness, you came out a little bit more like Joseph. God is in this temptation. He's not the source of it. He's not the author of it. He's the ruler over it. He's the director of it to his redemptive purposes. He means it for good. That's the theme of the book of Joseph. The story of Joseph. Genesis 50, 20. As, as Joseph stands before his brothers, as they're bowed before him at the end of this narrative... And he has fed them from the proceeds of Egypt as there was a famine in the land. He looks out at his brothers as they bow before him and he doesn't gloat. In fact, in his care of them, he says to them, I want you to know about our God. What you did to me, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Do you see Joseph's theology? Joseph is saying the things that are the worst that are happening in the course of life are actually the things that God himself is using as the means by which to accomplish his purposes. Is it fascinating? The, the same idea is at play right here. As, as Potiphar's wife means to do him evil, she actually does him evil. She grabs a hold of that coat on a day of vulnerability and he flees as he ought to in that moment. And she takes that coat and interestingly, isn't it fascinating, she, she uses it against him. Now, in a humorous way, we should, we should encourage Joseph to quit wearing coats. This is getting him in trouble. Isn't it fascinating that Genesis 39 mirrors and almost identically Genesis 37? That his coat is used against him. It's used as a means of deception. Whether in 37, we're dipped in the blood and sent to his father in order for his father to be deceived to think that he was dead. Or in this case, his garment used against him in a sexual way that banishes him ultimately to prison. What does doing the right thing in the context of all of this really mean? Here is Joseph. He's been wearing these coats. His coats have been used against him. He didn't do anything wrong in this case. He didn't deserve. This is an unjust deception that ruined his, his life, his present standing with the master. Now, here, here again, friends, we've got to nuance our understanding of providence. Have you ever heard it said? you ever thought it yourself? Okay, as long as I work hard, as long as I do what is right, things are going to go well. Some of us in this room, right, we train our children this way. You do your homework, study hard for that test, 
Live with integrity. Be righteous. Blessings will follow. Listen, there's good reason to say that. You know why? Because it's very often true. There's a whole book of Proverbs that talks about it. It's often true. Not always. Not now. Not, not this time. In fact, in this case, obedience and faithfulness turns out to be increased hardship for Joseph. One commentator this week said, sometimes telling the truth gets you fired. Sometimes playing by the rules gets you fourth place to those who cheated. And sometimes refusing to go along with the wishes of an adulteress will get you thrown into prison. Now, if you can see it, this is a hard sale. Let me just be a parent for a minute with a child. Now, listen, I want you to work hard. I want you to do what it is you're called to do. And I can't be sure that anything is going to turn out as you hoped it would be. That's a different narrative, isn't it? The question that really ought to rise in your mind, I hope it does, let's be honest with each other, is so why do anything right? Like, I don't have a guarantee, I don't have a certainty that the immediacy of, these, of this life is going to turn out as it should. And, and, you know, Jonathan Edwards really put his finger on this in that wonderful book called The Nature of True Virtue. He said, listen, there's two, really two kinds of virtues in the world. There's the virtue known as common virtue, a, a virtue that says, I'm going to go do the right thing in order to get something that I want. This is common virtue. Adam Smith knew this. The founder of capitalism knew this. He said, listen, if we create an economy where people's self-interest and their pursuit of happiness is front and center, people will work hard because they care about that. <laughs> they care about their money. They care about their happiness. They're motivated for those things. If we give them an economy where that's going to work, they're going to they're run. <laughs> they're going to work hard. You're going to get good employees that way if you reward that reality. Edward says, it just so happens that God has created and ordered the world that when we do what is right and we work hard, it typically works out well. That actually speaks to his character. That speaks to the design of the world itself. But Edwards also said, that's not the heart of it. He said, that's common virtue. You know what true virtue is? True virtue is when you do the right thing for the real good and right reason. Which in this case, it's not for yourself but for God. You do it for Him. You do it for Him. Now, in order for that to happen, you're going to have to actually treasure Him. You're going to have to love Him. You see what the, this text is asking you? It's asking you, do you serve God for you or do you serve God for Him? All over, as you read about cultural Christianity in North America, one of the things that's becoming very clear is that in, when increased op opposition begins to rise against the church in America, what we call the mushy middle is going to disappear. The middle that understands being a part of a church is a good thing and it bodes well for me in the local community and I strike business deals with it and I want to be known and said uh, as the person who goes to church. When that disappears... Who comes? 
That's Edwards raising the question of, of common virtue or true virtue. Why are you really here? Why are you here? Why, why are you really a follower of Christ? And you go, I'm a follower of Christ because I love Jesus. Well, what happens when Jesus doesn't give you what you want? How do you respond? Angry? Resentful? Do you ever find yourself having, oh, I've done all I know to do. And then he gave me the diagnosis. Where is he? Like, what did I do wrong? This isn't the way it works. You owe me. We'd never be that bold. Oh, but we'll think it. And our anger and our resentment will speak to it. And we'll realize that all along the way, we've been doing church, we've been doing faithfulness, we've been saying no to the right, the right things and saying yes to the right things. But we've been doing it not for him. We've been doing it for us. And as soon as that house of cards falls, we realize that there's really no substance to the Christianity that we call Christianity. Because there's really no Christ in it. At the center of our faith is a big fat I. Now I would believe that many of us in this room say, I don't want that to be true of me. I'm afraid that it is in some ways true of me. I'm afraid that more times than not, I am also often in the flesh, even in the living out of my Christian faith. But I don't want that to be true of me. I want to be one who can do what is right and say no to the adulteress and go to prison because that's what God has called me to do. And to be faithful for him in that vineyard as opposed to being faithful for him in the vineyard that is the master's house. And in both places, God is the same. His glory and his grace is present. And I have an opportunity to bear witness for him, which is the reason that I live. I want to be that person. How do we become that person? Well, I think only when we realize that he was tempted. On our behalf. And he remained faithful. Only when we realize that he was betrayed. By those closest to him. And remain faithful. Only when we realize that he ended up with trumped up charges and an unjust system. Landing him with allegations that were actually true of him. That he claimed to be God. And yet were completely adjudicated in a way that tried to destroy him on the cross. Do you see, Jesus is all over this passage. Jesus is the one who didn't just end up in prison. He's the one who ended up where Joseph actually should have. If you look at the legal ramifications in this day and time, he should have been killed. It's actually God's providence that he landed in prison based upon these charges. Which just points us to the greater Joseph, doesn't it? The one who didn't just get prison, but the one who got execution on our behalf. When we realize that he loves us, not because we are a great asset, but he loves us in the way that he loves Israel. As he said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, listen, I have set my love upon you, not because you're awesome. Not because you're the greatest of all the nations. Not because you have all the wealth and all the riches. I've set my love upon you because I love you. 
Just for you. Just, just for you. That's all, just for you. There's nothing you bring. There's nothing you add to me. I'm God after all. I just love you for you because it's an overflow of who I am. I am love. And when we receive that kind of love, we don't love our God for what he can get us. We love our God for our God. We love our God for our God and we'll take whatever he'll give us. Everything that he gives us, whether it's prison or the master's house, is grace when Jesus is the lover of our hearts. Do you see, that's what this passage is teaching us. That at the end of the day, true love of God comes when we learn to love him in the way that he has first loved us. The world is looking for that witness. The world is looking for a witness that's not a simple advertisement to get something from them or a sales call in order to swindle a little more. The world is looking for genuine love. It's here in Christ and through you to the world. It's available to them in the witness that you bear of that love in Christ. By God's grace, may we be the people who increasingly reveal the love of God by loving one another and loving the world in the way God has loved the world, in the way that he has loved us. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would do this, that you would turn our hearts unto you, that you would humble us and soften us, that you would convict us of the areas of our lives where we have, we've clearly more focused on ourselves than on you. And you'd begin to remove the idols of our hearts, the things that are vying for our affections and attentions and the way that we use you rather than love you. Would, would it be your wish and your work in our lives? That we become increasingly known as people who will live with utter abandon in love with you and willing to receive whatever it is you would give as an opportunity simply to make you more known. Lord, that's our prayer. That's our heart's prayer. Now in only the way that you can, come and answer it according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.